which of the pop songs in this movie were most uh, essential to you? Where you were like, I need this song at this moment, and I don't care what it takes to get the rights. There honestly wasn't. There, there were none, I don't think, that I was willing to kind of die on the hill for until, <laughs> until Under Pressure. Uh, which was a very unexpected discovery, but also one that the prospect of not getting seven months after having been working with it in the cut hmm. became the one I, I would have died on the hill for, I, th- I think. Interesting. We'll say at the beginning of this episode that we uh, are maybe giving away spoilers. Do you want to describe the usage of that song in the movie? No. <laughs> <laughs> That is Scottish filmmaker Charlotte Wells. And yeah, in her debut film, After Sun, she's always careful never to reveal too much too soon. It's the story of an 11-year-old named Sophie who takes a lazy summer vacation in Turkey with her beloved dad, Callum, back in the 90s. But between happy sunny days by the pool and karaoke at night, it slowly, slowly dawns on her and us. Something's wrong with Callum sadness neither of them really knows how to talk about or can even really understand. I am Rico Galliano and welcome back to the Mubi Podcast. Mubi is the curated streaming service that elevates great cinema. On this show we tell you the stories behind great cinema. Season three is coming soon. Meanwhile today another special episode to tide you over. It's my interview with Charlotte Wells about After Sun. It's a heartbreaker that won Best Film and six more trophies at this year's British Independent Film Awards. It's up for five honors at the Independent Spirit Awards, including Best First Feature. And it's in select theaters right now in the UK, Germany, Mexico, and a lot of other countries. And since season three of this show is going to be all about great songs that were used in great movies, Wells is just the perfect filmmaker to talk to right now. There are tons of scenes in After Sun that spotlight pop songs of the 80s and 90s. And they're more than setting the tone of the era. If you listen close, they're getting across what the characters can't or won't put into words. Case in point, yes, Under Pressure. Of course, written and performed by the band Queen, along with David Bowie back in 1981, which plays under a scene I finally convinced Wells to at least describe in the vaguest possible way. Um, it, it is used in a dance sequence in which reality and something a little bit outside of reality intersect. And it is the climax of the film. Yeah, it's like Sophie's watching her father dancing and she can almost see what's going on emotionally beneath that. Yeah, and, and, and for... It, it was it was in the cut for a long time, that music, and it, it was very unexpected. It was a discovery in the edit. It was a moment of madness late one night in the edit room. And once it was there, it became very hard to imagine without... It had an unexpected power that would have been very hard to let go of. I'll say this, watching that scene, and it is the final scene of the movie, even in the moment, you're right. I was thinking like, this is the most perfect song. No other song would work as well that I can think of. And I do wonder what was that bolt of inspiration? Like you're saying that it was the middle of the night and you just suddenly like in a moment of madness threw it in there. Whose idea was it? Was it yours? Yeah, there's just a huge power. I mean, Freddie Mercury and David Bowie have unbelievably phenomenal voices. Obviously, I don't need to say that out loud. (laughs) 
and just hearing them kind of go for one another in what sounded like a very intense recording session was just one of those things I would listen to from time to time as a kind of bolt of, of inspiration. Mm. And I think that's why I brought it in, just searching for that feeling of inspiration. And so I, I brought it into the cut just so I could play it from time to time, you know? And it worked. You said that you just carry it around with you as a point of inspiration. Has that been for years? Yeah, I just, I fall down these musical rabbit holes on, on YouTube when I'm procrastinating. And <laughs> Me too. I used to feel more guilty about it than I do now because it's obviously led to good things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so now it's easy to look back on it and claim that it's some integral part of the writing process when really it's me just looking to do anything but write. I'm going to use but that now I, from now on whenever I'm doing it. Yeah. I'll be like, look, Charlotte Wells did it and it really resulted in a fine piece of filmmaking. It's true. Yeah, it is a very happy accident and the film wouldn't work without it. And the lyrics ended up being... Like, I, I did not bring that song in thinking about the lyrics, at least not consciously. And they end up being the most obvious piece of exposition in the film, if, if you should so desire to take it that way. Well, that's what I was talking about lyrically, that basically that song is saying what has been unspoken through the entire film. It's a very subtle film emotionally in a lot of ways. And that's the closest you get to saying it. Yeah, which is funny because I don't think I acknowledged that even after it had been in the cut for a really long time until my cinematographer saw it and he said, are you really going to do this? <laughs> you know, it's just so outrageous <laughs> and obvious and we thought about it and ultimately we said yes I think one of the things though that saves it from being too obvious and in your face is because you change the music you strip out the music at one point and just let the vocals sit there turned away from it all it becomes sort of part of the tapestry of the movie instead of just like, I dropped in this song that everybody knows. Yeah, and the, and the score that Oliver wrote for it is doing a lot of work there too in terms of meeting it at points and working against it at others. There's that beautiful moment where Freddie Mercury's vocals gives way to Oliver's cello and Oliver's cello takes over. I wrote this diagram that was like two waveforms almost and, and where they both intersect. You, you actually mapped it out like graphically? I, I did. I mapped it out while having breakfast at my grandparents' house right before I went to meet Oliver and I sent it to him. And I think it was useful in illustrating to him how much I anticipated that track evolving, that it wasn't just one thing, mm. but like almost five distinct pieces to that scene and what the music was doing in each. You're taking a, a pre-existing piece of music, but then you're like orchestrating it through the scene. Yeah, there's like almost five acts in the scene. Let's talk a little bit more about the themes of the movie in general. You've, you have said in other interviews I've read with you that the thing all your movies have in common, this debut feature in your shorts, is that they're about people living in denial. 
<laughs> and why is that? What what draws you to that as a idea? Yeah, it's funny. For a long time, I thought this film sat apart from that, but was reminded by somebody that that's not true <laughs> at all. I mean, I'm not <laughs> setting out to make the same film every time. I think nobody is, and yet we do. do I don't know why why I am drawn to that. It's probably a question for my therapist, <laughs> but I am. And I think I'm interested in how people contradict themselves and ways in which people are, are messy and don't do what they say or... Well, it's the, uh, I mean, it's it's more than just that they're messy. It's that they're, uh, they're messy and they don't want to face it. Who does? Who does? I guess that's true. For I, I have to say it's an incredibly intimate movie. In some ways you could have made this into a play. It's, uh, it's very cinematic. I'm not saying that, but it's like, it's so intimate. And it's... <laughs> Good save. And it's proving, <laughs> and it's proving very popular which i think is wonderful and kind of pleasantly surprising in a world of marvel <laughs> movies but i've been trying yeah. to figure out what about it is resonating and there are a lot of things but i do feel like there's maybe a sense a lot of people are waking up to that we've all been living in denial about a lot of things like on a global <laughs> level oh interesting like maybe it captures a vibe of we should have addressed a lot of problems sooner yeah i i appreciate your characterization of the film and everything you just said there and it is surprising that people <laughs> seem to have liked it in the numbers that they have. The experience I had in making short films were that they made a meaningful connection with a small number of people, and that was always enough for me. Mm -hmm. As my producer likes to say, I would have been happy if only one person had liked the film, which isn't entirely true. I probably hope for more than one. <laughs> I don't know why that is. I think it's a combination of different things. And perhaps that's one of them. I've never really sure. considered there may be something to this moment in time that plays into that. By the way, I mean, it does occur to me as I'm thinking about the songs, like actually a lot of the songs you've chosen are either about denial or they're about waking up from denial. Are they? Have you thought about that? Was that by design? <laughs> no, it wasn't. What songs are you thinking of? There's a great, actually, one of my favorite needle drops in this movie, because it's a deeper cut, is uh, Brand Van 3000's Drinking in L.A. Oh, yeah. That song, because I remember when it came out, is about someone spending the day with a friend who supposedly wants some help working out the plot of a screenplay, yeah. but then realizing at the end of the day that all they did was get drunk. <laughs> They've been in denial all day long. Yeah, these are things I did become gradually aware of over the course of, um, of making the film. I woke up again this morning with the sun in my eyes When Mike came over with a script surprise A mafioso story with a twist A two-wrong fool, Julie here to get your ass out of bed He said, I'll explain it on the way I love that needle drop. It's probably my favorite in terms of just pure joy. Like I don't I don't have any special connection to that song other than I just love when it comes on. Really? It isn't hugely spotlighted. It's mostly in the background of the scene. There's a, the, a couple are making out. And some older kids kind of goad Sophie into pushing them into the pool. It actually has its moment in the film, which Jovan, our, our sound designer, kind of showed me at like midnight or 1 a.m. In the, in the sound room when I was desperately trying to go home, which would have been an early night for us. And, um, and he said, I'll just listen to what I've done here. And he basically put this underwater filter on it and he, he allowed it to play over them underwater as, as Sophie pushes these teenagers into the pool. 
hadn't anticipated it carrying over into that scene and it did and it was so exciting it's one of those moments where it's one of those moments you do this for where, where you see something or hear something and it causes you to levitate And I deeply resented he showed that to me at 1 a.m. Because <laughs> <laughs> they <laughs> because had to I stay up longer. leave the room for another two hours because <laughs> I was stressed about the fact that I thought we'd only cleared it for a very specific duration, which turned out not to be the case. We actually did have the flexibility to do it. But I thought I'd just been shown this perfect thing that we wouldn't be able to use <laughs> because it was so late in the, in the process. <laughs> but fortunately, we did. And it's so good. It's, it's, I, love, I love that moment in the film. Did you always like that song or was that something that he brought to you, your, your editor? No, no, no. I, I always liked that song. And in the UK, I knew it because I think it was on like one of those now compilations that kind of pulls together the best of, you know, like summer music or it was definitely on a compilation mm. that I, I discovered it. It's a great song. Oh, and that makes sense because this is about a summer vacation. It's a great summer song. Yeah, I think I can see the cover of this, this album in my mind. It's like summer hits or something. Let's talk about, I mean, another thing that I, is attractive to me about it, because I'm a traveler, I'm kind of fascinated by the specific milieu of this movie, which is the world of British kind of middle class package vacations, Yep. which I know you've said in other interviews, you have experienced these as a kid, right? Indeed. For, for those who haven't seen the movie or don't know what I'm talking about, could you describe what these are? Yes, they are hotels of varying sizes and degrees of niceness that cater to not just British, but certainly European tourists. And, and what's interesting is different regions have different flavors of them. And the British flavor is a strong and prevalent one, <laughs> which exists all over Europe, particularly in the south of Spain and Portugal and in Turkey. There are these towns in Turkey on a specific stretch of coast that really do cater to British tourists in terms of food and flag and, and everything in between. This film takes place over two hotels, one that is more modest and one that's a little bit bigger, but both very much within this space. You're not suddenly at a luxury five-star hotel. Now you went on this, some of these vacations as a kid. Did you go to Turkey? I did, I did go to Turkey as a kid and I'd love to say it's unrelated to the film, but I think one of the reasons that I set it in Turkey is because I had this memory and I have a lot of photographs from that holiday. And, and it was a familiar place to write from, a place that I had some memory of, although very, very vague, to be honest. I think I was about 10 or 11. Hmm. Um, most of the memories are really the photographs. That's kind of surprising to me because it feels like extremely specific. It feels like that movie was made by someone who remembers every single detail of that. But on the other hand, there is this hazy like everything's refracted through memory quality. Yeah, I mean, I think the specificity is partly universal to all holidays. And that's the thing about these British holiday resorts is you, for the most part, you could be anywhere. Mm. It could be Turkey, it could be Spain, it could be Greece, it could be, you know, wh wherever else. It's funny though, because at first, I mean, I think by design, you don't really see outside the hotel until later in the film. Yeah. And at first I was thinking to myself, oh, what a smart move. Like, I wasn't even sure if you'd shot it in Turkey. It was like, you can make this movie set in Turkey, but not even have to travel there. Good idea for a low budget movie. <laughs> you know, <indie> film. <laughs> yeah, sadly, I didn't have my eye closely enough on the low budget movie when <laughs> writing this. But it's true. And in fact, it was more true in the script than it ended up being in the film. And that was because ultimately I made decisions that best served the 
story instead of some idea that I had had. But the idea that I did have was that it was very enclosed, that that bigger of the two hotels, you really can't see the street like it's its own ecosystem. But in fact, at the end of day one, you see them run into the sea. Oh, so in the script that that happened later. Why why did you want that, that feeling that the hotel was kind of enclosed? Because I was interested in the moment that they break out of it. Hmm. I thought a lot about the sea. I wanted to withhold the sea, the image of the sea. Which is why I shot this scene of them at the sea with no idea of where it would go in the film. And it ended up being a moment that really had this sense of being in a new place of joy, I think, more than anything else, which was so essential to what I was trying to capture. And yet we were kind of light on, honestly, those moments. And so we had the shot of them running into the sea and... That's actually a change that was made right at the end of the edit. But it's interesting, though, that you mentioned joy, that that was something essential that you capture that joy, because it would be so easy to lampoon these sorts of vacations and make fun of them yeah. as being these kind of like, in a way, sad. It's like you go all of this distance and spend all of this money, and then you just sit in a hotel. You wanted to find the joy in that. Why? Yeah, the film's pretty earnest. Like, it, there is no satire and judgment more importantly and sometimes when i read people writing about the film there there is a sense of judgment to this place but the truth is these were the trips i took growing up and i was nothing but grateful to be there you know mm. it's time away it's time in the sun you have all of these activities at hand and and you're with family which in an ideal world you <laughs> find some pleasure in being with that was the story I was interested in telling. I There were certainly many details about these places that fascinated me. The setting of the film is not an accident by any stretch, but it was the sense of fun and enjoyment and, and warmth between these characters, which was the most essential thing to portray because without it, you'd feel no loss at, at the end of the film. Mm, paradise lost in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Although I, I do think that maybe this is also a right setting for this film because as the metaphorical idea that you're going someplace, a foreign country that's potentially difficult or it's different or it's scary. So you kind of surround yourself with the comfortable and familiar. So on some level, you don't have to deal with it if you don't want to. I mean, getting back to that theme of denial. That's interesting. Am I reading into that? Is that in your mind? You might be reading into it a little bit, but not in a way that I mind. Yeah, I think I probably thought about that. Maybe not quite in those terms, but in, in similar terms, in terms of yeah, the, the safety of being enclosed in a familiar space and, and then what it means to break beyond that. Let me talk about the performances here. There's, uh, Paul Meskel plays the dad and you have given him such a hard job because it's a character with real serious mental health issues. But the whole point of the movie is how he can keep them buried almost all the way. It's just gradually yeah. over time and an accumulation of moments that you realize how he's struggling. Talk to me about calibrating that performance, because it's got to be exact. Uh, um, it was a collaboration with Paul. It was about a collaboration with Greg, the cinematographer, and with Blair, her editor. I think those things are all working together. But it really all comes from Paul. And we spoke a lot about a so-called diagnosis of Callum and why... Like a health diagnosis? Yeah, a tricky thing to navigate because we for ourselves had to know what was wrong. Mm. And yet Callum doesn't know what is wrong. Oh, right. Like I had to be coming from a specific place to, to write it. Mm. 
even though I was trying to write it in a way that didn't succumb to cliche and there was no scene of him <laughs> on the phone with a doctor being prescribed medication that would provide crystal clarity to his struggle and what was wrong and why. <laughs> we had to know, but I think Paul had to then bury it because Callum doesn't understand what's happening to him. I was thinking as, as I was watching the movie, this would be a different movie. It's set in the 90s. It would be different today because even kids of the daughter's age know about mental health issues and talk about it almost more than any other generation ever has. And it's actually something you talked about before about why this film has resonated with people. Like I have started to wonder recently if that is at play here, if there is a literacy about mental health among younger people and the audience does seem to be comprised of younger people, if that literacy is, is part of why the film has worked. Because they recognize something in it? Because they recognize it. Because because they, they have the words to describe what they see unfolding on screen. Mm. Because that part of the film is legible to them because it's something that they spend a lot of time thinking about. Yeah, you know, it. and even though it's not articulated in the film, it is expressed in the film. And then they are able to articulate it after the fact. Mm, and talk about it. Um, I know this movie is at least semi-autobiographical. So moving on to the, Sophie, the character, the daughter, casting the part of that daughter who at on some level at least is kind of you. Describe that process. Yeah, I've been pushing back a little bit lately about the autobiographical appendage because... It is true that the feeling that the film builds to is very much mine. And it's true that myself and my dad were the inspiration of the characters, but they really did become characters in their own right. And casting was an interesting point in that because you either lean in or you lean out. Mm. And my intention was to lean out because I think that is another step of separation. Uh, and I think it's important to take steps of separation. At least it was for me. I wasn't... I, n I never saw this film as autobiographical. There are some filmmakers who do and who seek to recreate, and I was never seeking to recreate other than in feeling. So d did you choose the opposite then? Was Frankie like the opposite? I tried, and in fact, I chose Doppelgangers, as <laughs> likes to be pointed out to me by Barry Jenkins when he introduces the film about my abject failure in casting away, despite how hard I tried. And I think in Sophie's case, that's maybe more accidental than it was in Callum's. I think in Callum, it was... I just find myself drawn back to something that more closely approximated my dad, consciously or not. <laughs> Denial, speaking of. Mm. But with Sophie, we, we really met all kinds of kids. And Frankie is by far and away the one who looked most like I did at that age. But that isn't why I cast her. I cast her because she's extremely special. And that was evident to us upon meeting her. She had an ability that very few kids have. Was there something that you did in the moment that you were just like, that's it, she's cast? There was, yeah. It wasn't, she's cast. I, I torture myself over decisions. Very rarely do I make decisions that impulsively. But there was a moment, and she takes pride in this. She cried during a scene in the casting process. Mm. And honestly, I, I wouldn't normally, that wouldn't normally be a sell. I'm not looking for somebody to cry. But it was... If you met Frankie, you'd know that that just is the thing that feels so unexpected. She just isn't a kid who sits in feelings like that, you know? And um, we did an exercise where she did a role play with a casting director who played her mom, and she had to choose something she wanted. It, 
I don't even remember what Frankie's was. It was probably an ice cream knowing Frankie. <laughs> and then the second exercise that we followed that up with was kind of a reversal where the kid hadn't got what they wanted and, and Lucy had to coax them out of their mood to come to dinner. And Frankie sat there utterly still, again, still in a way that is very un-Frankie. And like one tear streamed down her face. Wow. And it wasn't the tear, it was the stillness. It was the fact that she could find that. And when the exercise was over, she leapt to her feet and she giddily ran out the room. <laughs> and it was so impressive and yeah. a little bit scary. And she was just able to find that state in that moment because we asked her to. My and that God. is really special. I remember her walking out and Lucy saying, well, that was the biggest surprise of the day. Charlotte Wells, writer and director of After Sun. You can see Frankie Corio's beautiful performance in that movie starting January 6th when it debuts on movie in the UK, Latin America, India, and elsewhere. Germany, Spain, and other countries can stream it later this year. Check the show notes for all the details. And that is our special episode of the movie podcast this week. There are more to come leading up to February when we'll drop our full season three, telling the stories of great songs that were immortalized in great movies. We are talking everything from reggae to Hong Kong canto pop. Follow us wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss it. While you're at it, declare your love for this show for all the world to see by leaving us a five-star review. It helps others find and love us too. And hey, if you want to hear more from Charlotte Wells, head over to Movies online magazine Notebook. There's a whole different Q&A with her there that'll post on January 6th. It's in handy text form. That's at movie.com slash notebook. This episode was hosted, written, and edited by me, Rico Galliano. Engineering and mastering by Stephen Cologne. Yuri Suzuki composed the theme music. Thanks this time to Kira McKenniff, Julia Noka, and William Fitzpatrick. The show's executive produced by me, along with John Baranachea, F.A. Cecharel, Daniel Kasman, and Michael Taka. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. Now go watch some movies. Thank you.